0: Hi, I'm Drew. My pronouns are he, him, his. I am a general pediatrician in Tucson, Arizona with a large transgender medicine practice.
1: And I'm Lizette. My pronouns are she, her, her. I'm a small business owner, advocate, and the mother of a 13-year-old transgender child.
0: And this is season two of...
1: I Stand By You.
0: With Lizette.
1: And Drew. Together we talk about allyship.
0: And this season, because we're all feeling very isolated, we're going to focus a little more on community, building community.
1: And showing up for one another. Welcome. Welcome.
0: Good morning.
1: Good morning.
0: Welcome to today. We are really excited to have a special guest on, on um, this Saturday. Um,
1: It's like, what day is it, I'm sorry, I'm
0: still waking up. Um, And so this is Charlie Sullivan. And you know what, Charlie, I'm going to let you introduce yourself.
2: Uh, Sure. My name is Charlie Sullivan. I'm the first assistant rowing coach, women's rowing coach at the University of Kansas. Um, I have been coaching rowing at the collegiate level for about 25 years now, mostly at the university of Michigan where I was the associate head coach for the men's team, um, which is a club program, but, uh, among the top programs in the country. And we won 10 national championships there, which was sort of cool. Um, awesome. I've produced a number of Olympians, um, from that program and, uh, What else? I started rowing in college. I was a swimmer in high school. Um, Went to Princeton. Withdrew. We're, full disclosure, we're college classmates, but we were figuring out that we probably didn't really know each other um, (laughs) there. Um, So, uh, And um, started rowing in college, and we won the national championship my junior year, um, although I was injured, but still team championship, so claim it there. Um, I am most likely the first openly gay man to have been a division one head coach in any sport that we know of some caveats there, how one defines openly gay. Certainly there were gay men who were head coaches before me. Uh, you know, did their friends know, are they out? Whatever. But sort of, um, in the media is one way that they do it. But that was uh, when I was the head coach at Eastern Michigan university, um, in 2001. Um, and I've been openly gay as a coach my entire career, which started in prep schools in New England. Um, so that is still unusual for men my age that they would have spent their entire career out. Um, what else? Uh,
1: can I, can I ask about that? So in the media, that was just, is that how they would describe you? And so how did that feel?
2: So I think I think that was harder. So I was involved um, also in um, gay swimming, mm. sort of when I came out, one of the places that I actually first found uh, an athletic home was in the gay athletic leagues. So the gay, the you know, the teams that like go to the gay games and stuff like that. Um, and that was in Washington, D.C., my hometown um, for the D.C. Aquatics Club. And as part of that, and I was already out before that happened, but so here I was a high school coach at that point up in Massachusetts and Connecticut prep schools, um, out on campus there. Uh, and, um, there was a book written called docs, which was, a sort of, um, stories of gay male athletes. And I was included in that. It was one of the sort of first, um, books written about sort of this sort of gay athletic mo- moment, wow. uh, that was sort of happening then. I, this was also, you know, um, in the, the absolute horror years of the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was, you know, finding, finding community was really important. Um, so, uh, so that's how it is and there's just this weird politics about it in some ways there's another really good friend of mine a guy named kirk um walker who coaches um at softball at ucla and he was the head coach at oregon state and he is an awesome guy and we're good friends and we work very closely together on a lot of things now including trans inclusion in sport um and uh we helped run an organization called the equality coaching alliance um and among other folks and um he was the first one covered by out sports and so there was this little weird tension for a while about like you know they would describe him as the first and then kirk would say no i'm not the first you know like there are these other people um and uh but so it's just been you know like there's this weird this weird focus on first which so i said very likely the first or who knows the first. Um, but we could just say very early on, I was an openly gay man coaching at a high level in collegiate athletics. Um, and that was sort of unusual. Um, I'm also a historian. I have a PhD in history from the university of Michigan. Um, I went there to be a grad student first and sort of back, backed into the college coaching experience there. Um, And my academic work, I grew up in Southeast Asia, in Asia, the Philippines, Singapore, among other places. Um, And my academic work is on gender, nationality, beauty, um, sexuality, uh, and mass mass violence. So trying to understand the gendered components of genocide is sort of one of the things I look at um, there Um, and fashion. So, uh, so yeah. So I wrote a dissertation on a history of Indonesian genocide. Read through the pages of women's fashion magazines. Oh wow!
1: Yeah, that's really fascinating. Freaky,
2: huh? Well, it's good no, stuff. Though makes... I think it's good stuff. It's just unusual. It's and yeah.
1: No, I think it, these are the ways in which we the world becomes complex. Right? When we talk yeah. about like how uh race gender capitalism when people hear capitalism they think like you know the small business owner down the street but really you're talking about like these mass corporations that utilize you know
2: um yeah so you go from the dutch east india company which then fails in 1800 sorry here's the history geek coming out of me right and it's taken over by the dutch government and so uh indonesia what becomes indonesia at that point so the dutch east indies right goes from being sort of a capitalist outpost to being an imperially extractive uh space right so rubber uh sugar coffee which we call java right all of those things being extracted today that would be palm oil today that would be hardwoods um you know uh that are again still sort of being extracted by an elite. So that's capitalism, right? You have no capitalism without the extraction of labor and mm-hmm. without the extraction of um, materials, commodities. Yeah. Exactly. Doesn't work. Doesn't You're function. You're talking
1: about all the things that I was telling Drew before we we called you that I was frustrated by because we I have just spent you know a week lobbying. And I was telling him, you know, it's just all the things, right? It's politicians being like, well, there's not much we can do, or we're doing our best. But it just feels so overwhelming in this moment. I think, well,
2: let's we look at about, Texas, yeah. right? Yeah. The Texas stuff is a complete failure of capitalism. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and for us to say that in an American context, people say, oh, you're a socialist. Actually, that analysis is Marxist. And yeah. I'm not a Marxist <laughs> in terms of, like, my politics, necessarily, Right. But uh, but it's a complete failure of capitalism right. and crony capitalism at that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So.
0: Well, and I think the other thing that I mean, really, that you were experiencing this week that we were talking about is also that these individual human stories, which are what is deeply moving to me and to a lot of people get lost in this whole. This is the structure of you know, money and business and all this. This and, is how
1: it's done, right? Like, um, which so. makes it hard
0: to fight for one person or one concept. Mm-hmm. And yet, that's what we. So want
2: I, to be doing. I, actually, Drew, I actually think it's the opposite. Oh. I think it's the flip, which is that I think, in particular, what we're not good at in the United States, and that the conservative movement, in particular is not good at, is is understanding things within context. Oh. right? So the, the skill of a historian is to be able to zoom in and out from 10,000 feet to the individual case. And to do that properly, for me to be able to write half a, a chapter about, say, um, this woman, Dewayane Pribadi, who sort of became Miss Varia in 1959. And you know, Varya was a magazine, and it was sort of like, was Indonesia going to have an international beauty queen or not, which was quite problematic in terms of the ideology at the time, right? But to be able to sort of zoom in and out between These much larger questions about what does it mean to be Indonesian, what does it mean to be an Indonesian woman, what does it mean to be a modern Indonesian woman, and whether or not she wore traditional clothing or not, right? You have to get the context right in both spaces. And I think what often happens with conservative thought in the United States is that they like to proof text. They like to pull... And we can talk about this later in terms of of sort of the Connecticut girls track and field stuff. They like to pull an example and put it completely out of larger context. Mm. Right. And say, see, see, see. And and the skill that they're missing is context. Mm. Right. So that to then come around and say that Texas was a failure of capitalism. Right. Right. and still say, but we can have compassion for the woman or the person that we see on the news who's, you know, who who's having to melt snow. I'm not so worried about the ones having to melt snow because that meant that they had heat and they had access to water. I'm more worried and, and, and not to be uh, uncaring, but, you know, shit happens, right? So something happens, how do you respond to it? I think that's a legitimate thing to say. That's the coach in me, right? Yeah. But you know there are whole structures that fell apart and we can see those in the individual cases but to then come back and say it was a failure of renewable energy is just getting context wrong
0: yeah yeah
2: and and, and it's it's uh it's not just getting it wrong in that case it's willfully misrepresenting it
1: right
2: you should know
1: right
2: but so let's do you what- should know before if you're you know, a former governor of the state of Texas. You should know before you open your mouth.
0: Yeah, that AOC didn't sneak in and pass the new green new Green New Deal in Texas behind everyone's back, yeah. right? Yeah. I was right. surprised yeah. to hear that. I thought she had, but I guess I was wrong.
2: <laughs> well, we wish she had. I love her.
0: <laughs> I do too, and I love I the fact that, that. that uh, overnight last night, she has raised two million dollars yes. for Texas yeah. relief, which mm. I Funny think that. is a great. I'm and it's so of, hard
2: to do that from Ken Kuhn.
0: Well, there's a... Oh, yeah. There's this express...
2: <laughs> I'm speak about another of, Princetonian.
0: What is, our, what is our equivalent word to own the libs? I'm like, own the serves doesn't sound right.
2: Um, I, but, I just know... I mean, you know what I'm saying? Them. I've just been saying that white supremacy, the the, the mental gymnastics you have to go through To accept elements of white supremacy. Let's talk about capitalism again. It's completely based in white supremacy as well. The entire system was white people extracting brown and black people's um, labor and their wealth. Right. So to, to hold on to these ideas of both sort of fundamentals of part of our of our Constitution. And the capitalist system is absolutely to be playing in white supremacy, whether you know it or not. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, um, the mental gymnastics to get around that and also try and be a good human being in this world is really messes up. It totally messes up your ability to actually just sort of deal with data.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause you have to be, you have to hold so you have to be telling yourself
2: ideas. a lie Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to make it work, and those <laughs> lies are right. The the classic lies: black people are lazy and ignorant and shiftless. They would say, "Right, of course they're not." Right. If you know any uh, sort of working class person holding down three jobs, lazy wow. is not the word. No. Ignorant is not the word. Tired shiftless maybe. is not the word.
0: <laughs> Very tired right? all the time. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's a, ama- it's that whole thing. Well, what we get here in the Southwest is the the people coming over the border are stealing your jobs, and they're sitting yeah. at home and getting welfare, which simultaneously that is amazing. I mean, simultaneously do and doing the, the work that
2: you would not do yourself, and you certainly wouldn't let your kid do.
0: Right, but they're taking that job.
2: But they're taking that <laughs> job. Yes.
0: Yeah, that's our Southwest version of all. Of so
2: this. I mean, there's actually those some really interesting. Research that's come out, uh, you know, very briefly, and and I think it's preliminary, but some indications early on that a significant number of the people who've been indicted or charged with the January 6th um, invasion of the Capitol have had really significant financial problems. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Um, Significantly higher numbers of bankruptcies, um, significantly... Worse credit rating, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So I think it's important to, to, as much as I'm disgusted by what happened there. Right. And that, that there are some folks who really have been struggling in this capitalist society. And at the same time being told that they somehow shouldn't.
1: Right. Right.
2: Right. Right. And so, There's this enormous disconnect there. So what do you do if you still need to feel that you're a good person? You look at the other say, well, they're taking our jobs, a job. I would never work.
1: Right. Yeah,
2: they're taking it. Right. Um, Or if they paid enough, so I would work in a meatpacking plant. Could we afford to have steaks ever? No. Right. 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 Yeah. So so I, I mean I think and we can talk about that later in terms of sort of this trans inclusion in sport and some of the women who've come out recently opposed to it because they're good people. I mean they're good people. Charlie, uh, not... some of the people leading that and 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 but they're coming from a very some of them are coming from a very specific place. Some others are just coming from pure transphobia. And I think we need to make some distinctions there when we get there.
1: I also feel, too, Charlie, that um, that I think people unwittingly again because they're i don't even know how to say it but like there's so much money behind these bills right through these lobby Uh groups that are writing these cop like these copycat bills there's Uh so much money behind it that i feel like these people jump on and speak out unwittingly like not even i don't even know how to say it but not even realizing the true impact that they're having all last week I, i had to really center with politicians the fact that this is really disruptive for families, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I we have around 200 families down here in Pima County that are parents of trans youth. And let's mm-hmm. face it, like, I'm a college grad, but I'm not, like, I'm not, I, I didn't go to school to be a lawyer. I'm not, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, I'm a small business owner, and I just, but I have to figure things out. and And sometimes I sound stupid, opening my mouth, but um, we have to show up up in these ways that are not natural, right? We're trying to navigate political systems that we don't really understand. And not only Mm -hmm. that, but it disrupts everything in our lives. Like my child is remote learning and I couldn't spend a day with him. There was one day we were together for 12 hours, but I was in another room, either organizing parents, answering emails and prepping for, you know, to give testimony and or get ready for lobby week. And I told my kid, I'm yeah. really sorry I wasn't here. So it creates such a stress on the nuclear family, right? These people say they care about families, but yet they're disrupting our lives with their hate bills. <laughs> and they don't even, yeah. they're dishonest about where these bills come from and how much money yes. is behind them yeah. to, you know, to spread them across the 15 states that took them up. So what are you as a as a historian and somebody who works in athletics and, and is passionate about trans inclusion in sports. Like, how do you see that? And how do you explain that to just somebody who doesn't understand?
2: <laughs> um, well, I think these are coming from different places. And I think that we need to distinguish between us. There's very definitely a movement that is coming from within a culturally conservative quote, Christian, unquote, although I would say national Christianist um, movement um, where the nationalism is much more important than the Christianity, and it always has been, and the white nationalism of it, Um, although quite complex also among the history of gender um, in the African American community where men were called boys, for instance, right? and where where gender is also quite complex. Um, uh, but, so you have this one group that's the culture war group, if you will. Um, and that entire culture war movement is being driven by elite power politics.
1: Right.
2: Right? So that's one group. So that's the DeVos's of the world. That's the Eric Prince's of the world. That is um, these sort of large evangelical church groups of the world. And they are fun where I think that's coming from is that fundamentally their worldview is based in a form of male supremacy where women are subservient to their wives, to their husbands. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So there's a heterosexual assumption There is a an assumption about power dynamics between gender, and there is a very strong assumption, almost to the point of, as people will say online to me, you know, you're not making sense when you talk about anything but male and female sort of, you know, um, uh, division of the world. Right. To them, this idea that there's something else just doesn't compute in part because the way they see the power structure of the world is male supremacist, right? And is misogynistic. Um, so that's one group, right? Yeah. And yeah. they're the ones who overwhelmingly are playing this fear game. And it's not just about athletics. Right. It's about where you can pee. It's about whether you can change your markers on your identity. It's about, you know, are you, is some trans, uh woman out there misleading their son you know and then all of a sudden you find out boom there's a surprise in the pants you know um like so that's that's one group right and let's let's point out that this is also that same group we talked about who largely is sort of really fighting for their social place and so they very much feel i think it's very important as a historian that I try and understand as much as I can about what I think is going on there also from their point of view, but like the, the, right. They tend to be more rural. They tend to be older. Their world has been falling apart. Their economy has been dying. Right. So, so yeah, like who, who, you know, and there's like meth addiction, like crazy. Right. Yeah. So if we talked about the meth addiction in rural white America the way we talked about the crack addiction in urban black America, like that would be pretty revolutionary to mm-hmm. put those sorts of, sorts of, of, of balances on it. So I think that's one group. And is this, the, would you go say, ahead, please. I mean,
0: I'm just, I'm curious on this. Is, I feel like it's a group that also, they feel like it, the rights, civil rights and rights in general are a pie and that you, when you take out a slice, that's one less slice for them. And they've had so much of their pie taken, honestly, by capitalism and corporate America over the years that they fight for what little bit is there. Um,
2: yeah, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. I know we like to say, you know, rights aren't pie. You know, I, I know that that's like the, the image that that's out there. I, I think it's a little bit more... Not so much whether I think people are fine with with I think those folks are fine with with, say, black people having rights. And I do think that that's a shift uh, in America over the last four years. I don't think they're willing to give up their rung on the ladder. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the distinction, that they somehow feel that other people have been given a step above them on the ladder unfairly in their minds. Right. Because when they don't get into Princeton or they don't get, you know, whatever, um, and they see, so I knew when I was in Michigan, I had a lot of working class friends and they watched the black kids in their high schools get into Michigan U of M and they watched themselves get into Eastern Michigan and they interpreted that through a racial lens. And my point to them was there were plenty of white kids getting into the University of Michigan. Plenty. Yeah. They just weren't from Downriver. Oh, they just were not from working class neighborhoods in nearly the same amounts. Because all the white kids who were getting into the University of Michigan were coming from Bloomfield Hills. They were coming from Rochester. They were coming from Ann Arbor. They were coming from richer white. Right. So just, they were being discriminated against. Those guys. But it was on the basis of class and socioeconomic status, mm-hmm. right. not on race. Because, right? But is... they experienced it as race because they saw um, affirmative action lifting qualified black students out of those schools, but not lifting qualified white students because we didn't make class
1: an issue that needed right. to be
2: paid attention to carefully. Now, Princeton is, for example, our... our, our you know, one of the things that, that I think Princeton and some they're they're making it if you if you get into the school they're going to make sure you go right right because they're rich and yeah. they make they're making that happen and it's having ripples even say within alumni circles when our kids don't get in right um, in a way that I got in because my dad went right that's what distinguished me from the other thirty kids in my high school class you know, who were just as good and distinguished me and three others of my classmates who all went to Princeton. And then, you know, two African-Americans went to Princeton and all of us qualified. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, in fact, those two African-American kids both really good friends of mine, smarter than me. Right. I, I'm the one who got the affirmative action to get into Princeton.
1: Right. Um, right?
2: So, so I think that, I think that that's some of the issue. Um, is that we have to remember that class has been racialized in American yes. history very intentionally. Oh, yeah. Right? Because if we all um,
0: figure out we're on the same team, they're in touch. Watch
2: out. Watch <laughs> out. Right? Yeah. So I think that's that one group, right? And I think that, that there's all sorts of those reasons that we put in there. What we saw a couple of weeks ago with an announcement from... The Women's Sports Foundation and and Champion Women, um, I think, comes from a different place. And I want to be really clear about my connections here. Um, I've been working on LGBTQ issues in athletics for quite some time. Uh, Through that work, I was very fortunate to meet um, Nancy Hogshead Maker, um, who has been running this and she is a friend of mine. And I don't just mean, uh, we've worked together. I mean, we talk about life. I mean, we talk about our kids, uh, you know, um, all that sort of stuff. And I have a huge amount of respect for her in multiple ways. Number one, she was almost one of the most dominant swimmers in her era. You know, she was ranked number one in the world at 14 in her events. Right. Um, And she is also one of the leading, if not the leading Title IX lawyer in terms of um, keeping women's sports programs alive. So you may have seen in this COVID space, there have been universities cutting sports, including Dartmouth, including the University of Iowa, including the University of Minnesota, including Stanford. Um, and the University of San Diego State um, and just to name a few, right? And Nancy is the lead lawyer with her organization who has done all of the really hard data gathering and crunching that they've been able to come back to these universities and say, "Mm, here's the law, here are your numbers, you're not in line with Title IX, you can't cut those sports legally, and what's happened? Dartmouth has reinstated its sports. Iowa restated its sport. Minnesota is going to reinstate its sport, right? So she is doing incredibly, incredibly important work um, in terms of maintaining women's opportunity in sport. Um, And it's going to go further because there are very few colleges and universities in this country that are truly in compliance with Title IX. Um, And this is really important work. And she does it brilliantly, and she's doing it absolutely to create opportunity for women, which we absolutely have to have happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she, if you look at some of the women who were sort of on the the top of that list, she, Martina Navratilova, Billie Jean King, they were a generation of women elite athletes who had to work really, 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 really hard to get any recognition. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Yeah.
2: When rowing as my sport is a great example. When when rowing came to the Ivy League, when women came to the Ivy League and therefore women's rowing came to the Ivy League in the early 70s. Right. Um, the classic story. Of the title IX revolt kind of came out of yale where the women had to so the boathouse at yale is um some miles from campus uh, you know 15 20 miles something like that um and you have to go up on buses every day and and the at the boathouse um the men the heavyweight men the lightweight men would come in after a cold day's warm you know workout and they would go into the boathouse and shower in the showers and the women would go sit on the bus and wait for them. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, and get cold and ironically the women were good. The women had possible Olympians on their team and the men were not so good at Yale at that point. Now they're very fast, but, um, But they weren't but we still hate that in that particular (laughs) but they they would get to shower and they would get their laundry done and all that sort of stuff so these women walked into the athletic director the female uh associate athletic director i think and sort of bared their bodies and literally wrote title line across their chests and their backs and they were standing there naked and reading a statement you know these are the bodies of title line and it shifted right what could happen at yale at princeton the women I know who rode in the first years there were only allowed into the boathouse to get their boat and walk out. They were not allowed onto the second floor of the boathouse, um, uh, where even when I was there, the it, the boathouse hadn't been redone and the men had this enormous set of locker rooms between the heavyweights and the lightweights, this big, Open shower and, you know, stuff like this and, and all this space. And the women were crammed in a tiny space back around the back, yeah. right? It's now been redone so that it's, it's, it's even, but, um, uh, you know, but so the women there would sort of walk in, get their boat, go onto the water. Maybe not as bad because they were just down the hill from campus, so they didn't have to wait, but still, these are the types of fights. Right. That female athletes had to make to get scholarships, to, um, you know, have the same sets of uniforms, to travel in the same way. Um, Women's coaches are still underpaid. I am now a women's coach and relative to men's coaches in men's sports, I am underpaid. Um, Despite the fact that I'm one of the best coaches in my sport in the country, and I don't mean that in a in a like boastful way, but I'm really, really good at what I do. Right. Um, uh, and, and, uh, you, you look at how much football coaches get paid, which we're not supposed to say in divisional athletics and how much basketball coaches get paid, which we're not supposed to say in athletics. And even then how much baseball coaches get paid okay. and how much hockey coaches get paid, right. Versus what rowing coaches get paid or swimming coaches get paid. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, Women had to fight very, very hard to do that. At the same time, some of those women ended up competing internationally against Eastern Bloc athletes, particularly East Germans, if we'll remember swimming well, right? But that was also true in rowing, true in track and field, who were being hopped up on testosterone.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So there's some real serious history there, right? Um, the face of women 's athletics has changed, um, but it 's still not equal and so there's still a very important fight to go on and Nancy is leading that fight, and we need to be supporting her a hundred percent in leading that fight so the argument in athletics that's coming from this group of people at its at its top is actually quite nuanced i disagree with it and nancy knows i disagree with it there was a long set of arguments and one of the things i told her is nancy your argument unfortunately is going to empower some people who just are not thinking about it through the same way as you are and sure enough i was getting attacked by so here i am with a phd right in history in women's history in gender studies, in feminist studies, I've read it all. <laughs> I've heard, I've sat in seminar rooms with women talking about it all. This is not stuff I don't know. And they'll start to lecture me on Feminism 101 because I say something that they don't agree with. And so therefore, as a man, I just must not know. And that was what it would come back to. Well, you're a man. There's no way you can know you've never embodied this. And I'd say, bullshit. was raised by feminist mother. I was raised by feminist grandmother grandmother you know like i've been raised a feminist my whole life my dismissive line is it's not something that i discovered at 21 mm. you know when i went into the work world um and i don't want to be dismissive that way but pardon me is like of course men can be feminist get over this and we can know this stuff and it's not like women haven't been writing loads and loads and loads of stuff to explain what they're thinking so just go read some andre lord just go read some whoever you want there's all sorts of stuff so this idea that somehow women can put out all this information and therefore but men have no way of knowing there's a disconnect there for me so this is what i was saying to to nancy was like you know like "Mm, you're enabling some stuff that's really ugly and i don't think you're intending to okay so let's look at the argument that is coming out of the very top of that because Nancy, very clicky, will say this has nothing to do with recreational sport, right? This is not a general ban that she is proposing on trans inclusion in, say, your softball league or a kid's soccer league, right? Um, But they make two points that I think are a little bit at odds with each other. And the other thing they do is they make some points and then sort of generalize from them. Um, so the one is they make a scientific argument. Drew, you can maybe talk to this a little bit about testosterone and its effects on, on bodies, right? Mm -hmm. And you've seen patients people, not just patients, but people through transition with hormone replacement therapy. And for sure, testosterone has some powerful effects on bodies. Yeah. Right. Um, (laughs) so and the withdrawal of testosterone similarly has some powerful effects on bodies. Yeah. Right. So they point to that science as saying, well, here's what testosterone does to a body. Right. What they don't have and what we don't have is really good science about athletic transition. Um, And we need more of that. But there are lots of barriers to getting that. For example, to do it really, really well, you would have to have a control group and a control group we can find. But how many trans folks are you going to find who have trained seriously enough as an athlete that they have a really good data set of how fast they were how strong they were not just in competition but in daily training so when i train uh, college athletes here i can tell you we train seven times a week four of those i take data on every kid yeah. every piece every heart rate every stuff like that so i have an amazing data trail and I can show you their progression from their freshman year to their senior year. We can take into account if they got sick, uh, COVID. We're actually having fascinating times looking at the data with COVID and how that's affecting different athletes and how quickly they can come back or not come back. Um, or we're seeing effects from Black Lives Matter um, in athletes of color where it's just harder to push some days which totally makes sense, right? Um, So you would want to have, ideally, a cohort of trans athletes who had trained seriously in some sport enough and at a high enough level so that you are getting them beyond the growth spurt of 14, 15, 16 years old, right? And then they would have to choose to transition and allow researchers to track their athletic performance during that transition which they would have to keep doing at an elite or high level like that's how you're going to know that this really works and i just don't think i mean you have sport you have states where there are like 10 trans kids trying to compete in the entire state right yeah so how are you supposed to get that transition so what we have is anecdotal we have individual cases um and If you only look at it in terms of testosterone, what you also miss um, is the effect of emotional liberation as your body starts to look and feel like you've always thought it should look and feel like. Mm. Do you train better because you're not carrying that burden on your shoulders every day? Because yeah. what we ask people to do in training sports, in rowing and swimming and track and stuff like that, is to flirt with failure every day. Right? And that's hard emotionally. So I, uh, I've i trained a number of people who've gone to the Olympics in rowing. I've trained many, many more who had the exact same physiological advantages, height, VO2 max, erg score, whatever. But what they do didn't have to the same extent as the guys who made the Olympic team and the national team was the ability to just emotionally handle the grind interesting right so that's the distinguishing factor for me mm-hmm. right um, so so they point to a generalized science to FERkovvec about testosterone and then they generalize it to so if athletes still have testosterone in their system, they have a clear advantage. Okay? What they can't do is point to the cases. Right. And we can talk about that a little bit later about a different... It's sort of where I'm coming up with, right? So that's one argument. And then the second argument is that this will destroy opportunity for women. Yeah. Okay? And that, I think is just patently false mm-hmm. i don't think they have any case that shows it at all, okay The Olympic Games have been open to trans women since two thousand and four as long as they have been in transition and are maintaining their 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 testosterone level at a certain in a certain level and in fact drew you'll you'll back nip on this many um trans women who are um, taking hormone replacement therapy, in fact, end up with lower levels of yes. testosterone. Most than of cisgender them, women.
0: Yeah, most most trans women in their transition will end up with lower testosterone levels.
2: Definitely. Yeah. Right. So the argument there, we, sort haven't of any to be, win, we haven't had have any Olympians
0: when we haven't ever even had any trans Olympians,
2: there is life? not it's my point, there's not a single trans Olympian that we know of. And, um, and in the Olympic system, they would have to declare themselves
1: yeah and they' they're mis they're misusing one olympian uh, case, a runner who did not so, realize she was intersex
2: right yeah because... and and so there also has been this case where again, white women from the first world have gone after black and brown women for a particular, um, for a particular chromosomal pattern yeah. right mm-hmm. um, and, and and you know, just train harder. come on. You yeah. know so they've also conflated those issues mm-hmm. right so in 2004 you could compete in the olympics which means that if i'm not mistaken and i haven't double checked this but that probably means that in the quadrennium leading up to that you could also trans you could also compete in say world championships um you know because there is a- an entire qualification process for the olympics right yeah. um and yet, we don't have a single trans woman who seems to have shown up there. Right. Right? Um, the NC2A has allowed trans inclusion, again, with at least a year of home hormone replacement therapy. Um, that's the short version of the requirements, they're more complex than that. Um, and during that entire time, we know of one trans woman in one year, in one sport, in one event, who has won a single NC2A championship um, in the 400 hurdles in division two. Yeah. Right. Um, so I keep asking, so where's your evidence that women are being like replaced and then they go back to, well, there are advantages that people could have from, um, say a male puberty, if you will. Right. Right. In terms of height, in terms of bone density, in terms of uh, muscle muscle tone and stuff like that, not necessarily knowing that the muscle stuff is precisely what goes away, right? When you start HRT, um, or it trans it doesn't go away; it, it becomes different. It's probably a better yeah, way of saying it that, right?
0: Definitely does become
2: um, And completely avoiding the concept that at the elite level. All athletes in Division One college, almost all athletes in Division One college athletes, and certainly all Olympians, are genetic freaks. They're <laughs> completely on the edge of genetic expression.
0: It is true. Right? When you so need there are man, almost no
2: women, like it's a tiny percent of women in this country, who are taller than six feet. But if you go to a club high school club volleyball program yeah. – uh, Uh, you know, I think you're going to see 200 of them who are taller than six feet in a gym with 400 women in it. Right. So there's already a selection for these sorts of things. And then the other thing that they don't take into account is that when we see individual women who truly excel, Simone Biles or in swimming, let's talk about Katie Ledecky, Katie Ledecky in the 800 freestyle. No one has touched her and she's winning by multiple seconds. This has not kept other women from training. This has not kept other women from stepping up and going hard. In fact, she lost one race internationally when she was sick and they interviewed this Italian woman who beat her. She goes, you know, I can't imagine having swum the time I just swam, but I had to because of Katie Ledecky. So what real athletes do when confronted with a Simone Biles, you know, when confronted with a Katie Ledecky, when confronted with a Jackie Joyner Percy, when confronted with a, with a Nancy Hogshead maker, <laughs> is they train harder and they get better. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is that other little lie that they never quite point out, which is that. The woman, the trans girl who won the hundred in Connecticut, her junior year got beat by the woman who was yes. second the next year. And when they talked to her, they said, so what do you do? She says, Oh, I trained harder.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah. And none of those women in Connecticut is any place close to like the top 50 in the country. I don't even think they're in the top 100 i tried to check today and i couldn't see all the way down but at place 50 they were still seven tenths faster than the winning times in connecticut
1: i also feel like
2: so there's 200 women or something faster than that trans woman than that trans girl right right and yet so where where is women's opportunity being taken away from where are women not competing because the women i coach are hella competitive the women i coach and we we have to race texas texas is number one or number two in the country right we line up against texas and you're lining up against sinks olympians right so do we not race them right we just say oh well we can't do it Actually, we had to have that conversation on our team. When I kept using Texas as a barometer with my team as a as a sort of benchmark, there were someone who said, why are you bringing up Texas? We're never going to beat them. And I'm like, well, because that's the speed. And it's not that we're never to. Are we going to beat Texas this year? No. Our Kansas crews are going to be really fast. Much faster than people have gotten used to. Um, and we've been here three years doing this new program, and last year we didn't get to show. Right? Um, and I think I don't know if we'll surprise people or not surprise people, but we're going to be closer to Texas than we were two years ago. Right. But so are my women backing away from competition because Texas is really, really good. Our swimmers not training because Katie Ledecky is really good. The international gymnastics federation actually had to pull a skill. Wow. That Simone Biles created because they were afraid that no other woman could do it safely. And they knew that women would kill themselves to do that. One woman starts to throw a quad in in figure skating. The next year, all the 15 year olds are doing it. The 18, 19, 20 year olds aren't, but the 15 year olds are saying, oh, we can do it. So this is actually how athletes respond. So part of what I really don't like about what, some of this is being said is that somehow there's this sort of assumption that women are not going to be good athletes, that women are not going to train hard, that they're not going to pick up a challenge from somebody being faster. Right. So there's another way that we know that this isn't happening. And this is sort of where, again, we get back to those issues of context and I'm sorry I'm going on, but you got me fired up here. (laughs) Um, uh, Right. So in history, We don't always – we have to stick to the sources that we have. So if I'm writing about Indonesian women in the 1950s, I may not have all the sources I would love to have to say, look at, I don't know, whatever question I like. How much money did women put into buying fashion? Don't have that, right? In the United States, we have it. For the United States in the 1950s, we can actually sort of – people have worked on figuring out exactly sort of like what budgets were and how much people were spending and how much things cost and percentage of GDP and stuff like that. I don't have that for Indonesia. Does it mean that I can't say some things about that? No, I just have to be really honest about how I fill the gap. Yeah. Right? Right. Um, so I may have to look other places. I do have the data – for how much batik was produced, right? So, and it's all for domestic market, or pretty much. So, like, I can then sort of make some inferences, but I have to use the context, the proper context to circle back to where I think there's a problem in conservative thought, right? Um, so where could we look to see if trans women were having that effect that they claim would happen, which is that cisgendered women would lose their opportunity and that transgender women would be unfairly fast to use a speed sport, right? Mm -hmm. Or unfairly competitive. So if we know that trans girls and trans women have have been competing and have been competing for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't necessarily know who they've been competing against, right? But if there were trans girls completely changing the face of women's athletics, we would see it in the record books. We would see it in women's times getting drastically closer to men's times. Mm. But it's not there. We would see it in particularly these days as athletes are – Young people are more comfortable, maybe being out. We would see a massive number of trans women winning, you know, conference championships in swimming or being in the first boats in in you know in in on crew teams, and we just don't see it. Does I it mean think- it can't happen? No.
1: I also, but think in China- the twenty
2: years that we have. We haven't seen this massive movement. There's been a little bit of close on men's stuff, but I think that's because women have more opportunity. Yeah. So they can't even point to the logical place that you would look to to see this effect. Totally. right, mm-hmm. And also- it's not there. So when it's not in any of the data, and what I love about the record data is it is absolutely kept like crazy. I also Like think- that data is good.
1: I just want to and say, Charlie, sorry, not to cut you off, but I also think that, that there's a point that people don't even, it's, what we've seen is we've seen a surge in parents supporting trans youth, right? We've seen yes. this surge in, in, in parents affirming young children. Yes. And because of medical technology and, you know, doctors being open to affirming trans youth what we're seeing is this movement of parents affirming their children medically and where yeah. the sports and earlier yeah. yeah and where the sports and medical bill conundrum comes in is that they were very purposeful in knowing that parents were going to feel nervous about talking about their children's medical care because that feeds into the fear of us manipulating their bodies therefore abusing them so this argument becomes really difficult because now we're backed in a corner because if you want to talk about trans girls in sports you have to be open about their medical history and open about their medical care and
2: that and, puts you and, and at in a, a time space. when their bodies when all kids bodies are like need huge privacy right yeah. and
1: not only that
2: but the whole, enormous privacy right
1: yeah and not only that but it's just well it's an invasion of privacy and it also would force parents to justify why they're providing that care and open ourselves up to those conversations about whether we're abusing our children, which goes back to what always happens to trans people is that they are reduced to their body parts first, which is a gender bias. And so it's very crafty in the way that they've done this and really frustrating and terrifying (laughs) for
2: families. But I also want to say that I think that a lot of folks don't even understand that that's what they're doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, right? Then... I mean, I think, I think in that sense I want to hold space for them, not, you know, just whatever. But so just in the last week, so a um, couple of small stories, if you will, and I need to be a little bit uh, vague just to protect folks, right? Sure. Um, very good friends uh, with a boy um identify or, you know, uh labeled female at birth, um, who told them at two.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: That he was a boy and they listened. And I have had the this boy is now I want to say thirteen. Um has been under the care of a very good clinic um in Chicago for quite some time. Um, made a very important decision to begin hormonal treatment. And, you know, they sort of, for their friends, put up a picture of him taking his first shot. Mm. Um, And I cried when I saw it because this boy is an athlete. (laughs) This boy has done several sports and a couple of sports that are quite different in their male form and their female form. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating to watch him being trained to walk through the world as a boy in gymnastics. Hmm. So everyone who knows him, you know, and and they went into the gymnastics world and he started to be pretty good. Um, And so I helped them get in touch with the National Center for Lesbian Rights, which has been like the lead (laughs) The lead, they are the mothership in all of this, then, you know, yeah, in, in helping trans yeah. women in sports and trans trans athletes in general, right? And the parents didn't want to disclose yeah. that their son um, had the sort of gender background that he had um, and had the body that he had, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So I was able to bring this this young boy to Michigan to meet Sam McCoolick, who's a great gymnast and a great guy, and Sam came and talked to him and, you know, all that sort of stuff. He had to go to the bathroom. I could see the eyes from him to his mom. Like, is it okay? And mom said, Yeah, just go. You know, and, and I assume he went into a, to a stall. I don't know. I didn't ask, right? But like he's being raised a boy. He goes into a locker room. It's not a big deal. Sam McCoolick, Olympic you know, Olympic Medalist and all around great guy is just like, you know, let's do this. Their coaching staff knew with permission from the family, what was going on and what they wanted to see. And that and was great. Right. Um, my landlords here in, in Kansas are now in Washington and they have a trans son who's a ninth grader um, in Northern Virginia and is going to start rowing uh, this week. And, their son is excited to row and they're excited for him to row. And I don't know what his medical stuff is. I've seen this young man and he's tall. (laughs) He was tall. Anyway, he's going to make a good rower. Right. Um, And and this is what should be important. And I think this is another distinction that is not being made well. And not only in this sets of issues, it's not appropriate to tell an adolescent that they must do hormone treatment so they can swim Mm -hmm. or play soccer. Like, those decisions need to be made for those things. And for me, the point of junior athletics, overwhelmingly, even though, yes, people are very serious about it, it's about health first it's about mental health first it's about all the things you learn from being on a team sport it's about learning how to push yourself it's learning how to be comfortable in your own body particularly when your body may not be comfortable for you
0: Mm
2: -hmm. right in all sorts of ways right and and so i just think that at the junior level there should be absolutely no restrictions on you know on that and that's the way we've written the u.s rowing trans inclusion policy that i helped draft so at the junior level you just have to ins- you have to sign up with u.s rowing for the men's side or the women's side we don't ask the question you have to train there it's not easy to switch back and forth right so this whole idea that so someone's not clear and they're whatever this right you know um, there's a process to do that if you want to switch um, but when you show up in a race, no one's allowed to question your gender. So.
0: All right. So, you know, I think we probably should start our wrap up here. Um, this has been really interesting because I have to tell you, we've talked about this issue um, from the medical side, from the parent side. Um, and, um, even the athlete side to some extent and have not heard about it though, from someone who has been coaching at the elite level and who obviously loves women's sports. So this is awesome.
2: Yeah. Um, so (laughs) it's been a lot of fun. As you can tell, I've been doing a lot of thinking about it and, um, with my full sort of analytical brain engaged, uh, about how to see this at a larger issue as a larger issue. And I just think that, you know, Drew, you asked when we're off the question, whether, whether some of these folks know trans athletes. And I know that some of them do. I am just not sure that they've coached someone through transition, which I have done for, for adult masters athletes. So I want to make a really quick sort of place about where I am on where I think hormones are appropriate and are not appropriate as a requirement. Mm -hmm. Um, i think that in in high school junior and lower athletics it is absolutely inappropriate to require hormones Um, those are medical periods and medical times um, that each individual family each individual person needs to be able to make the right decisions for themselves right Mm -hmm. Um, and yet they should have full access to all the things that Can happen. So, Lizette, you were talking about your son loving basketball, but only really being able to play at school, but can't play in the other leagues because, you know, he doesn't have the right papers. Um, I think that stuff just needs to end.
1: Yeah.
2: Right? Um, I think that master's athletics out of college, and that's not to say that master's athletes aren't very competitive, but I think that the primary point of master's athletics, again, is health, is wellness is all this sort of stuff. It doesn't mean you can't compete, but again, you know, say you have a trans woman who's been on hormones for a long time, gets cancer, has to come off of them, right? Like can she suddenly not compete because for health reasons she needs to be in a different place? Absolutely not, not correct. Right. Um, I think that in elite athletics, which I define as in the United States, the college level outside of the United States, it would be the sort of under 23 club level at an elite level, and then the elite level, which is uh, the Olympics, the professional leagues, et cetera. Where the real point is competition, um, that it is and where athletes are already making, all sorts of other decisions and sacrifices about their bodies and how they treat them and what they do with them. I think it's perfectly legitimate to require HRT for a trans woman who wants to compete. And mostly, uh, most of the trans women I know that want to compete, the trans men that I know that want to compete at the college level are totally fine with that. Right. right? Um, So you might have to make a choice if you want to be an elite swimmer and you're uh, a trans woman. Um, between hormone therapy and competing at an elite level. And I think that in that very small, less than 1% of athletes in the world, I think that's appropriate. Um, But other places I don't. And I think that so there's also sort of a slippage in what we're hearing from the folks opposed to this, which is that they talk about, say, an Olympian, and then all of a sudden they're talking about a 14-year-old girl right right and as if they're the same thing and if it's the same situation and you asked me another question leaves that off there and 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 what's going on there and again i'll point out that a significant amount of the opposition to this is coming from whiter and more affluent parents yeah um and what's going on there i don't think there are certainly young women that we recruit at the college level in all sorts of sports who don't need the scholarship, right? Mm -hmm. If daddy's an investment banker, they don't need the scholarship. That's not what it's about. It is sort of this sort of stamp of approval of parenting. Look, my kid got a college scholarship.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Right. And so I think that there is something about status going on as well. So I think a lot of what's driving And if you look at the Connecticut track case, you see it all over the place. The parents who were opposed and brought the lawsuits were absolutely afraid that their daughters were not going to get the college opportunity that they want. And that's mirrored in what's being said of this idea that somehow trans women are going to take away cisgendered women's athletic opportunity. Right, that they're going to take very valuable spots, and we're just not seeing that. And you know, if we start to see that in high school athletics in the next ten years, we may need to reconsider some of this. But right now, it's not happening. Right. Um, so, so I think the other thing that I would say to that is it just belies how college recruiting actually happens. So I've talked to my friends who coach track and field and. It doesn't matter if you win the Connecticut State Championship or you don't win the Connecticut State Championship, they're looking at a time.
1: Right.
2: And if there are 200 kids, if there are 50 kids in California who are running, or Texas, who are running faster than one kid in Connecticut, those kids are going to get recruited first.
0: Right. Yeah. Right.
2: And at the highest level. And it's pretty sort of so, and then you're looking for, is it the right fit? Is it the right school? You know, is it a kid that you like? All this sort of stuff, you know, do they like you? All that other sort of stuff that goes in there. But there's also no evidence even that those girls in Connecticut didn't get college scholarship offers. Right. But I think the scholarship isn't really the thing as a scholarship per se, but I think it's a huge issue when you have a family who's decided when their kid is 12 to put not just their financial uh, backing into that kid's athletic experience, but it, it takes over the culture of the family. Yeah. Right. Every weekend you're traveling, you're every day you're worrying about the next workout. So it becomes like your thing. Right. And somehow this idea that, you know, um, your kid didn't get to go to a meet in in uh in Boston because they didn't make the final in Connecticut when they're a ninth grader. I'm sorry, train harder, yeah, and I know that sounds crazy, but just train harder. you only needed to be a tenth faster right yeah so yeah. um so i I just think that what we're dealing with there again, becomes all of this class stuff, all of this sense of entitlement. Um,
0: Well, and there's no, it's no coincidence that the girl in Connecticut who um, won that one race was black. um, No. And that the pictures everywhere show her um, in the middle of a race stance where she has that, the obvious competitor look on her face, which is yep. the saint, which is a completely non-gendered look on someone's face. That's a little bit scary and <laughs> purely focused and did yeah. not show a picture of yep. her. like.
2: Well, anymore. if you look at the girl next to her who beat her the next year, she's got the same look on her face. Right.
0: Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah. That's, that's what an athlete looks like when you're going full out of the state yep. championship and you're in the top two in the state.
0: Yeah. Right?
2: exactly. Um, so so i'm hoping i'm hoping that as we get more information out there uh that that in particular there's an older generation of women who are athletes who we also don't push to the side somehow because i think that their you know their concerns in some way are real like because people are trying to take away women's athletic opportunities That is happening. It is a real thing, right? But
1: but it's so. Um,
2: But it's not coming from trans women.
1: Exactly. But that's (laughs) That's
2: not where it's coming from. Like go after football.
1: Right, but that's like white supremacy. It pits marginalized people against
0: each other. Absolutely. Hey, that's perfect. We are back where we started.
2: <laughs> We've made it all the way around the track group. Hey, so we, we just have, ran a 400. We do have a couple of questions. In an hour and 15 minutes.
0: We do have a couple questions we like to ask at the end. Sure. Um, first of all, can you tell us in these times of um, us all doing everything virtually and not having human contact very often, Mm -hmm. Um, What are three things um, that you're seeing to help build and expand community around you?
2: Wow. I actually think in terms of my team that I coach that the community has gotten stronger precisely because other parts of the community have, in their lives have dwindled.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, So They're spending a lot more time together. Um, They're working very hard to stay COVID negative as much as they can. That means that they can't make the decision to go out on a Saturday night the same way they, I mean, things that athletes think about anyway, but really there are some other women looking at them and say, yeah, no, like let's not do that. So that's one way it's happened just where there has been community that can be together. It's become thicker. Mm. Um, I sing in a gay men's chorus And we've been trying to sort of do chorus a la Zoom um, in the Heartland Men's Chorus. And is it awesome artistically? No, but it's good. And there's community. Is it the same community as all the baritones in my row sort of sitting there and telling inappropriate jokes uh, through rehearsal? No, when we started doing that the other day, we were shut down, appropriately shut down. Um, So I think that that there are some ways... uh, there and um, for me at least being single and having a sometime housemate um, I I don't know I mean for me uh, it's been hard yeah yeah.
1: connection is so needed right now Daniel's in in a trans choir they're called them oh is he in them yeah oh
0: wow Oh nice. Yeah. I have to say the idea of um rowers becoming a tighter knit community um having come from a rowing family um, <laughs> I'm just trying to picture that because they all are glued together to start with.
2: Well, so how is how is how it has expressed itself? Um and we've been setting this discussion up on the team for a couple of years anyway is being real with each other there's a lot of pressure on this young generation to sort of not rock the boat with each other. Yeah. Um, and they've actually had to have some discussions about, so what does it mean to have your boyfriend or your girlfriend come over? Right. Well, am I allowed to tell you, I, I really am upset that you went out to the bar because you weren't, you know, like you were putting us all at risk. Um, uh, all that sort of stuff. And so, in that way, what they're getting now is a more authentic community as opposed to one where the difficult questions were sort of sloughed off and you shouldn't really hold each other too accountable. So we've been working oh, on accountability cool. with each other. Um, and I think that without COVID and without um, uh, Black Lives Matter, we would have gotten there, but not nearly as quickly. Yeah. And, and I don't think the work would have been as authentic. Wow.
0: Well. And then our second question that we like to ask everyone, and um, you don't even, I'll actually let Lizette, do you want to go first? No, no. Oh, we'll ask you first. first. So, um, someone you admire this week.
2: Oh, man.
0: I can go first. You go first. Because mine's super petty.
1: Okay, Tom. Again,
0: I love Ted Cruz's neighbors. I mean, totally, I mean, everyone, totally I mean, I'm there <laughs> Everyone hates Ted Cruz. Like, it's incredible the number of people who hate him. I mean, I love the stuff from his college roommate at Princeton and all that stuff.
2: Well, it's telling. Yeah. I have friends in that class at Princeton who are now professional, you know, professional people. I'm also ten years off from him, so I'm on, we're on the same reunion cycle, right? Uh-huh. So you meet people anyway, and uh, they keep saying nobody liked him when he was there, and that's hard to do at Princeton. Yes. It's yeah. really hard to have nobody like you at that school. Yes. Nobody. That's, that's, that's a challenge. I mean, that shows you what an asshole he was even back then.
0: So his neighbors have been instrumental in releasing the text chain that they were all yeah. doing. It's
2: freezing! And it's $309 income. a night. And it's got great uh, <sighs> security. Those three things together, I was like, "That doesn't say the world."
0: Yeah, I just have yeah. to say, huh. I I love his neighbors because they were like, "Oh no, he's lying." Here's the text chain. I love it. <laughs> that's, that's my that's not my petty people. I admire. That's my inspiration. not, not that it's
2: going to make any difference,
0: right? No, probably not in the long run. No. But at least it's it's neat to have that happening and be able to juxtapose it with um, AOC raising two million dollars for Texans.
2: Yeah. who am i admiring this week um i'm admiring some of my athletes this week because we are in the hardest week of winter training the second hardest there's another week that is hard in march which is this hard um a little bit harder and we didn't have practice monday afternoon and tuesday morning because of the the weather, um, and the possibility of rolling blackouts. So they just didn't let us into our space because what happens is electricity goes out. Um, and we came back Wednesday morning and we had a really not good practice. It's been one of the first not good practices we've had. Um, and they turned it around and yesterday we had one of the hardest practices of the year and they knocked it out of the park. Um, and there's some women who've been sort of, knocking on the door making some moves and after the hard day that didn't go well Wednesday, they came back and did it Friday. So I'm just really admiring the work that they're doing, um, and, uh, the focus that they have to do it and their willingness to buy into the system that we have and just sort of trust it. Um, and so I, I'm always blown away by the athletes I'm privileged to coach. But this week, in particular, there are two or three that I'm really thinking had some really spectacular overcoming of the difficult emotions that they've been fighting with um, for various reasons you know, in their lives and, and still produced uh, yesterday and today. So, awesome.
0: Cool. And Lizette. Lizette.
1: I don't know. I was so cynical this morning. I guess I would say, so uh, Drew and I are both like Buffy fans. And uh-huh. I'm just going to say that I'm proud of Charisma Carpenter for finally breaking her silence and saying that, you know, all the bad stuff that Joss Whedon did. I, that, and then I feel like we can't have nice things because it made me sad. But um, I always think it's really, I'm, I'm always inspired when people stick up for themselves and advocate for themselves. And so yep. I'm going to pick her this week and Michelle Trachtenberg, even though now I'm not going to be able to watch it the same anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's over.
2: <laughs> That's a whole other discussion. about can you can you read can you read harry potter can
1: you hold on Uh, to your the art that you love i know can we listen i love
2: harry potter i I love 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 harry potter and it is brilliantly written stuff and i think it has important stuff in there i'm never going to give up harry potter and i know that that pains i know that that pains trans friends of mine
1: daniel always says that he's glad he never got into harry potter so
2: <laughs> maybe later in life though. I mean, there's some important stuff to look at it. Now we can also look at it in terms of how race works in there and it's got some problems too. Yeah. But, um, you know,
1: I really, there's, well,
2: there's no pure art.
1: <laughs> no, there isn't. I mean, we're all flawed in some way, but yeah. it, what, what hurt me more about the Joss, we, uh, Joss Whedon news was toy story. Cause he wrote toy story Yeah. and he won an Oscar for it. And I love toy story. I think it's, I think it's a I think it's just beautiful. And so I yeah. was really bummed about it. I mean, I can never really truly break up with Buffy. I think there's some great moments in that
0: show. There
2: you go.
1: But but toy story. Well, I mean
2: again, like, we, we need to be able to take from all of these situations what we can take. Um and and realize that we're complex Human beings and understanding complexity is actually the real critical point here. Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yeah.
2: Right. I mean, w- what's happening in terms of trans athletes is that these individual people are being transformed into some sort of symbol, um, yeah. rather than being themselves. Yeah. Right. I mean, your your son is nerdy and wears glasses and loves basketball. Yeah, he
1: does. Right. <laughs>
2: That's gorgeous. But isn't that freaking awesome?
1: Yeah. You know, and he tries um, so hard. I mean. There yeah. you go. I think
2: the 15 year old son of my, of my, of my landlords is going to start rowing this week and it's friggin' awesome. Yeah. You know, they're just like
1: kids,
2: they're kids. Yeah. In the end, they're kids. Let them be kids.
1: Yeah. And the, and I think people forget that we're just families. Like we re- I, it, it, it takes away from us getting to have those family milestones. Like those, like what you were talking about earlier, those weekends with your kids at like sporting events, like all the cheesy things that we think about that we just want to do it with our kids too, you know?
2: Cause, so. Lizette, I'm willing to bet if you were a rowing parent, I have a strange feeling like you would have like some amazing pancake recipe that would show up at the food tent, and people Maybe. would be like, "Ooh, look at Lizette. Hmm. I'm
1: I'm not the best cook, but I would definitely shower with treats and coffee for sure.
2: There you go. Or you'd be the coffee lady who shows yeah. up. You always <laughs> that, got the good that coffee, more right? Me. I would show up with baked goods because I did used to be a pastry chef. So, uh, <laughs> you know, like like things I've done to support my coaching career. Yeah. Um, Awesome. So.
1: Thank you for your time. Thank, Thank you. you so much. It was
2: a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, thanks. Have
2: Thank a great day. Thank you for your allyship. You too. Bye and bye. get out there in the sun if you have it.
1: We, we will. Bye-bye. Bye.